what we're seeing right now is certainly in the urban sector, the urban sphere uh, at the digital realm and the physical realm is much more of a focus on uh, human centric uh, activities as well as uh, neighborhood focused uh, mobility. So we've uh, basically centered a lot of our movements in a sphere that really translates to uh, localism. And this localism is in part a direct response to social distancing, to confinement, and to uh, restrictions for public health as uh, part of COVID. However, this has also opened up the opportunities for uh, stakeholders in the public and private sector, whether the public sector, they be uh, public administrators, urban planners, policymakers, et cetera, to think about how the cost of doing business, either from an equity perspective, from an environmental perspective, or an economic perspective, is simply not sustainable. So we cannot go back to that world we were talking about in our previous podcast of 2019. That's not going to happen. And it shouldn't happen because, again, we had many deleterious effects at a global level if we were to continue down that path related to congestion, related to environmental health, related to environmental justice, social equity. Hi, Smart Community friends. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, we welcome back Scott Shepard, who you may remember from episode 139 in 2019. Scott is an urban planner with IOMOB, the Internet of Mobility, and is currently based in Lisbon, Portugal. He's also ready to talk all things mobility. Scott first tells us about his passion for cities, places, and people, and how these link together with mobility and transport. As Scott is based in Portugal, he discusses the contrast and comparison in urban planning between the US and Europe, and how he looks for best practices for sustainable urbanism this way. We then go back to micromobility in 2019 and where it was at the last time Scott and I spoke. We then talk about digital communication and digital trust and how these have shifted, as well as the focus now on human-centric action and neighbourhood-focused mobility as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. We talk more about the pandemic and the impact it has had on our urban and digital environments and how some of the temporary emergency-based interventions can be implemented into society long-term. Scott then talks about intermodality and the need to think beyond the silos of individual modality. Before we discuss how public needs are changing and in terms of transport, how their behaviour can be influenced for better sustainable mobility outcomes. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trends of technology such as electric vehicles, hyperloops, air shuttles, air taxis, and personal autonomy, and whether these are sustainable, scalable, and the real future of mobility. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Scott. How are you today? Hello, Zoe. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Now, this isn't your first time on the podcast, but we'll talk about that later. Let's go to you first and tell us about your background and what you're passionate about. Sure. So my background is I'm an urban planner. I'm passionate about cities. 
places, people, and movements, and all about, you know, how society forms around the built environments, but also layering in technology and new innovations that kind of enable the society to kind of move in a more sustainable manner. And the thread that kind of stitches all that together for me, my passion, as well as my career path is mobility, is transportation. And that has been kind of a, the layers of the onion that kind of peel over time. And that's really the core of uh, what I focus on here based in Europe, but also back in my previous career and uh, places of employment in North America, the United States as well, too. Yeah. So tell us where you're, you're zooming in from. Yeah. So I'm speaking from Lisbon, Portugal, my adoptive homeland. I've been here about three years. I'm a native of Los Angeles, California. So huge uh, taco and craft beer fan, you know, big Lakers fan, uh, Lakers and LA Rams. So Definitely a West Coast person at heart in the U.S., but kind of uh, now with more of a European focus in urban planning and a, a bit of my personal background is kind of comparing and contrasting from a transatlantic perspective of urbanism, mobility, as well as uh, urban planning on both sides of the Atlantic and seeing what models work, what don't, and how basically we can uh, look towards the future for uh, best practices in terms of uh, sustainable urbanism. Mm-hmm. And so you came on the podcast in 2019. Your episode went out in November of 2019. We were doing a themed month called Movember, uh, which was all about moving around. I cleverly came up with that. And then I looked back later and I was like, oh, it's like Movember, but not, but move. And my team was like, yeah, we thought that's what, what you were doing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, anyway. Enough about me. So, yeah, we talked about, it was episode 139. We're now in the 200s, which is exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, 228, I think, will come out uh, very soon. Well, would have already been out once this goes out. Your episode was called Looking Past the Hype in Smart Mobility Trends. So I remember having a really great conversation about scooters and micromobility and stuff like that. When it was all kind of happening, and I think we had a quite a um, balanced conversation, as far as I remember, around yeah, that's all well and good, but actually, what about the rest of the system? It's all well and good to improve the mobility right in the centre, where actually they probably already have fairly decent mobility. How do we then shift that out to the other areas? Because I feel like I probably would have mentioned yeah my experience in Mexico City, where they've got these scooters, but they were originally in the like outer suburbs, but um, unfortunately it, it, it all changed. But that kind of thinking was coming in where it's like that whole system of thinking, which, um, yeah, it was. I remember the conversation quite well, actually. It was a really good one because I think it was one of the first times we, yeah, we really talked past the hype, which was really good. Yeah. At that point in time in mid to late 2019 was certainly, I would say, the, the peak hype in terms of micromobility here in Europe. It was about six to eight months behind North America in terms of the introduction of the market-driven approach to um, scooter share startups, primarily out of North America at the time that were crossing the Atlantic into European cities, starting, I would say, in Spain and France, and then kind of spreading outwards with national legislation to uh, Germany, as well as Central Europe at that point in time. Uh, the UK came later and the UK is still more at the uh, pilot phase, kind of deploying different market pilots for uh, scooter share companies. But we hadn't at that point in time seen a lot of the homegrown 
uh, scooter share companies that were either self-financed or financed by venture capitalists in Europe starting to dominate the market at the time and either uh, complement or eclipse some of the North American operators. I'm not going to really mention any of the operators for the sake of you know discussion here, but just to kind of open up that conversation. But that point in time, again, was very market-driven approach, very laissez-faire, very open, let the market kind of run its course. And we had a bit of this uh, battleground being set, this friction between the public and private sector, where we had uh, basically scooters being deployed in different districts and, and cities, uh, unregulated, and cities then responding, over-regulating, over uh, basically producing restrictions that uh, aligned with the actual uh, placement deployment of operations, and then uh, basically put into place uh, policies that allowed for more of a formalized uh, procurement RFPs for the operation and permitting of scooters. So it kind of uh, went both directions at that time, but there was not necessarily, I would say, a common ground or an equilibrium at that point in time in 2019. And it was very much in its infancy, certainly here in Europe. And that's kind of setting the stage for what our previous conversation was. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks so much for, uh, I guess, going back there and just kind of refreshing our memory on what we did to kind of talk. It was a rewind, yeah. Yeah, and like in the context, because it is important because this <laughs> shifts so quickly. It's it's bananas. Like, And also COVID was not even a thing that we were even thinking about at the time. And I think that's an important conversation as well because then I've had, you know, many more mobility conversations with a whole bunch of different people and we are having different conversations. Some of the fundamental things are still the same that we, you know, we want to move, but we're moving in a digital way as well. And that's more recognized now. It was always happening. And I think last time we spoke, we were probably both traveling like crazy people. And yeah, it it is interesting because I feel like I'm still traveling, but yeah, it's just in the digital world now. I did an in-person conference uh, a couple of days ago and I realized I do actually miss that because as an extrovert I can get a lot from digital connections as well and but yeah really miss that in person but to say that actually it made it more powerful or more real or more connecting because I hadn't had it all the time whereas before it was like you know the default was in person and then digital if you couldn't do it and it was like less than whereas now digital's the default and then it's like more than if you can connect with somebody face to face but what i like about this is that we can build trust in a digital world which is something i talked about ages ago but was you know talking to different people and the consensus is was that you would have to meet the person first, then you can build trust digitally. You know, it was really important that first meeting. Yeah, the traditional model of kind of uh, relationship building and trust building and whatnot, the, the much more formalized approach to institutions and the commercial world and business. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, as a podcaster, I'm not going to wait until I can be in the same place as somebody. So I was doing it in reverse. Yeah, and get a physical business card. I mean, come on, you know, who's going to do that anymore? <laughs> Or go to the board and meet with, you know, 10 people or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Those days are past us. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I bring it up because I want to talk about it, I suppose. But I'm keen to hear more from you. Okay, so we talked a little bit about what happened in 2019. We're zooming forward. Now it's an end of April 2021. Tell me what has changed in a concise uh, little box with a bow. Yeah, so we've had, what, three or four waves of COVID now. We've had multiple lockdowns and confinements globally, uh, not just here in Europe, but in North America, Australia, Asia, everywhere. 
and society has completely been upended and uh, turned upside down for worse, but also for better too. So this is where I'm going to wear my urbanist hat right now and talk about some of the promise and hope and future for how times of uh, crisis spring opportunity. What is How does that saying go? But anyway, <laughs> so uh, crisis spurs uh, invention. And what we're seeing right now is certainly in the urban sector, the urban sphere uh, at the digital realm and the physical realm is much more of a focus on uh, human-centric uh, activities as well as uh, neighborhood-focused uh, mobility. So we've uh, basically centered a lot of our movement in a sphere that really translates to uh, localism. And this localism is in part a direct response to social distancing, to confinement, and to uh, restrictions for public health as uh, part of COVID. However, this has also opened up the opportunities for uh, stakeholders in the public and private sector, whether the public sector, they be uh, public administrators, urban planners, policymakers, et cetera, to think about how the cost of doing business, either from an equity perspective, from an environmental perspective, or an economic perspective, is simply not sustainable. So we cannot go back to that world we were talking about in our previous podcast in 2019. That's not going to happen. And it shouldn't happen because, again, we had many deleterious effects at a global level if we were to continue down that path related to congestion, related to environmental health, related to environmental justice, social equity. Uh, so what, what has been happening in the United States, what's happening in uh, the global level, UK and other places, and as well as what has been happening from a sustainability perspective related to just the movement and actions of our day-to-day -day activities. And whether or not these models that were set up from a engineering perspective, from a planning perspective, and a built environment perspective are really uh, sensible given that these enablements of the digital and physical realm are now transforming, as you mentioned before. So this emphasis towards the digital layer being the default in terms of our communications, in terms of our commercial opportunities, in terms of our social opportunities, and how the physical realm fits into that, and how this shifts our entire perspective of time and space, spatially and temporally. So spatially, geographic, temporally, time. And how do we move across space and time in our urban environments vis-a-vis -vis commuting? Do we have these dual peaks of commuting morning and evening? Or do we have multiple peaks that are more bifurcated across the spectrum of time on a daily basis so that we have more micro movements to different co-working spaces or maybe infrequent movements that are not necessarily on a daily basis, but maybe two or three days a week, blending in this digital and physical realm of teleworking and working at a co-working space or an office place. So we're really rethinking the on-demand economy. We're rethinking bricks and mortar, and we're rethinking what it means to kind of strike a work and life balance and having crisis, meaning COVID, enable, I would say, employees, citizens, as well as others to uh, utilize this as a basis to strike a better equilibrium between the personal world and the professional world. And this has moved and shifted these paradigms of what it was seen as the standard office environment, the standard work environment, nine to five, commute in the morning, commute in the evening, 
you'd be at your desk, you'd be at your cubicle, to now much more of a blended environment across space and across time, and perhaps having movements within the urban sector, perhaps interacting with a central business quarter, a central business district, or maybe, as you say, in Australia, a high street, we say in the United States, a main street, same thing, you know, a commercial center, but in fact, maybe not necessarily such a hub and spoke model from a, uh, I would say, an urban geography perspective, but one that's more polycentric and one that is much more neighborhood focused and has many different exchanges and interchanges. Because again, this feeds back to the social and physical construct of cities being living organisms. And they're not necessarily these monolithic uh, creations of you know humankind. So I said a lot, maybe I didn't say too much, but COVID has struck a chord in terms of finding an opportunity for changing our physical and digital environments. Yes. No, I think, yeah, some great stuff there. And I think it's it's reflecting on that. Like, I think right after, uh, I mean, for us in the last, you know, maybe end of 2020, we reflected on COVID, but I, I think it's important to continue to reflect, to continue to see over time how we how those some some of those things are coming back and do we actually want them to because it's not a it's not um you know some of the things we can't necessarily control because it's you know the community decides that's what they want to do but there are things that we can potentially influence from a corporate sector or a government sector or whatever policy but also within our employment like you were saying like are we we're going to stick with the flexibility of working at home three days out of five or whatever the case may be. But I also think with the shift in work, which, you know, may have got a bit of a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a dip, but definitely maybe had a, a divert, like a different direction because if you had a stable job, uh, I guess stable is a weird term to use, but like a, I don't know, a traditional employment situation in COVID that was stable enough that you weren't worried that you were going to lose your job, for example, um, you you may have stayed there for that time, but then you could think, is this actually what I want to do once things, you know, kind of come back to normal, whenever that may be. But then I also think that we'll we'll see this kind of gig economy shift up again. And not and I mean a professional gig economy in the sense of like, you know, an engineer might be working at three different places or something, you know, along those lines. So then you'll see that will also affect the way people move around. If we embrace this remote working in particularly like in regional towns, for example, that can have a huge influence if 20%, half of your population is doing this kind of work, whereas before it may have been very different. So I think I've also just said a lot and not very much, but but I think it's important that we continue to reflect on this and then kind of go, oh, actually, no, we're going back down this path that we we decided we didn't want to go down, but we didn't know how to shift it, and it shifted, but now oh, we're sliding back down again. Okay, what can we do to, to shift that back? Or maybe it's not back, but maybe it's in the middle. You know, it's something different. Yeah. Two things I'd just like to add to that. One is uh, COVID has exposed the inequities socioeconomically in our society in terms of uh, the employment sector. And those that uh, can utilize the attributes and benefits of a flexible digital economy can and will and have that option. But others that are in other uh economic sectors such as the service sector and other uh, heavy manufacturing, construction, others do not have that opportunity. And one, were more exposed to the COVID virus and two, had to be at a physical location. So they simply uh, did not have that option or benefit. And it really uh, laid bare 
these differences in terms of how our society is structured, certainly in North America and the United States, but even in Europe, I'm sure in Australia and other areas. And it made us kind of uh, question how I would say we strike a balance and equilibrium between the public and private sector to one, uh, protect public health, and two, to stimulate the economy and, and maintain a robust society. So that's one comment I'd like to add to that. But two is, how do we find that middle path? So I totally agree with you, Zoe. And what it is, is one, we don't want to go back to, you know, November 2019 in November or whenever we had the last podcast. So that's not, I would say that's, that's not the goal. That's not where we want to be. But we don't want to go back to complete COVID lockdown in March or April 2020 either. We don't want that. So how do we kind of find that equilibrium? Um, because we don't want massive uh, congestion on our roadways or infrastructure that's overly reliant on the automobile. That's single modality. We don't want that either. We want to move across uh, and move away from some of these, I would say, unfounded fears of the spread of COVID by public transport, which are simply false, and uh, people's aversion to using uh, public transport and shared mobility, uh, thinking that uh, COVID could be spread as a vector for those forms of mobility, which is uh, statistically un and scientifically unproven. And two, I think it's important to think about how uh, we structure our society and as well as our cities and the built environment such that some of these temporary interventions by urbanists, by policymakers and urban planners are sustained permanently in the long term. And while they need to be enabled by uh, stakeholder engagement, and uh, citizen participation, they cannot be top down by diktat uh, by the government or the public sector telling citizens, we are going to close your street and you have no citizen input. And that's not fair and that's not right. There has to be some, some there has to be a participatory planning process. As an urban planner, you have to have your uh, social engagement, your community engagement. However, that does not necessarily negate some of the gains and the uh, positive outcomes that we've seen from many different uh, emergency-based interventions by municipalities, primarily in Europe, but a bit in North America too, meaning uh, Berlin, pop-up bike lanes, Milan, uh, car-free city centers, Vilnius, Lithuania, outdoor dining, et cetera, et cetera, Barcelona, city blocks. All these interventions need to be structured in a manner that they strike a balance with citizen participation, stakeholder engagement, but they are focused on much more of a permanent uh, basis for a sustainable urban environment because we cannot go back to what we're seeing right now is a troubling trend on the part of different lobby, lobbying groups and different, I would say, coalitions, mainly in the United States, but we're seeing it in the UK too, which is much more of a pro-car centric and pro uh, push towards opening up the streets again and uh, eliminating any open streets uh, kind of interventions uh, that allowed for more uh, pedestrian activity and more uh, kind of community level engagement. And there has to be a bit of a balance so that we can figure out how some of these temporary interventions can be put in place long term. And then they can also lead to what I'd like to call and what we work on at the company I work for, I am of the Internet of Mobility, a little pitch here, which is intermodality. So this is where the public sector now starts thinking beyond these silos of individual modality, because traditionally up until 2019, most public transport authorities, municipalities, and others 
viewed individual modality as their own uh, domain. And if you were a bus operator, if you're a rail operator, you pretty much viewed other modes, whether they be shared or not, certainly in the private sector, whether it be a bike share scheme, a scooter share scheme, et cetera, as a direct competitor to your passenger ridership base. And COVID has also laid a new opportunity for the public sector to now think multimodal as a door-to-door journey in terms of essentially building out better access, not just ridership, but access to bus, rail, tram networks through leveraging other private suppliers of mobility, whether they be car share, whether it be scooter share, and not viewing in the lens of a competitor, but viewing at the lens in a network effect, in a marketplace. So these different suppliers, one, boost their ridership, which is the traditional KPI, key performance indicator of the success of a public transport operator or a private contractor operating their network. Or now, as we're seeing a lot in the media and the news, the the terminology of access to mobility and transport, not just ridership, simply how many people are using network, how many people in a geographic unit or a shed have access, pedestrian access to a range of mobility services to perform their daily leisure as well as work functions. So just another layer to kind of add to what you had described. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important. And I think yeah, we have to think about that. I mean, we always had to think about it, right? But but now more and more, we're being forced to now. And yet, some of the work I've been doing recently is exactly that. You know, we might be looking at a, a bus network, for example, a new bus network, but actually you're looking at, well, how does that integrate with, you know, micro-mobility? How, does that inter- how do people get to the bus? Uh, they're walking, you know, is it shaded? Is it safe? Is it nice to actually do that? And also then when people get to the bus, what can they expect what what can their experience be? Particularly um, people that may have never caught a bus before, maybe they have a disability. And so, you know, they don't want to be sitting at a bus stop waiting for a bus that never shows up, you know. And so how do we get that real-time information? But also thinking about if, um, you know, when we do get on the bus too, then what is the experience like for somebody? So it's thinking more about that customer experience as or even you know, when you're buying something, you're thinking about the same thing with a public, like a public transport network. So it's like, you know, I buy things from certain shops because I get a good customer experience. Maybe the quality of the product is so high and all those type of things. But if there's two things that I'm going to buy um, that have the same level of quality, maybe the same price, et cetera, maybe this one's more, but I get a better experience, then I'm going to choose that. So there's all those things that we need to consider, convenience and all these other things that maybe potentially we didn't have to incorporate or we didn't incorporate in the past. We have to do that now because the the expectations are are changing for customers, but also we want better cities. We want better regions. We want better communities for everybody. But it has to be more customer-centric, like you said. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, it can't be just thought of as passenger-centric and either a public authority or public agency, and no fault to the public, because I'm very much a supportive of the uh, government and public sector viewing individuals as passengers or riders, but they have to be viewed now as customers. And customers are participating in a marketplace, an exchange of services in a public and private manner. And public transport is just one mode that stitches into this entire offer for a consumer that will choose to participate in a multimodal uh, journey versus using their own automobile. And this is one of the desired outcomes from a policy perspective in terms of, I would say, influencing either 
modal shift or behavioral change for more, more sustainable um, mobility outcomes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm just looking at the time. We've had a really great conversation about what's happening kind of now and what we're starting to think about. Let's zoom a little bit further into the future and talk about those emerging trends, which I think we've already started to, you know, that's what we're talking about, right? But let's talk about emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough. Well, we hear a lot of trends right now that people are talking about a lot, but do they have legs to them? Are they really that feasible? You know, uh, do we really view uh, kind of high-speed tunnels for uh, individual automobiles, electric vehicles? I won't name names. Are they sustainable? You know, the ones that they're considering to build under Miami and Las Vegas and other cities. Is that the future of mobility? And can we call that public transit? I don't think so. So that's one trend. Are hyperloops really sustainable? And are they a replacement for high-speed rail networks or even kind of short-distance uh, journeys f- across uh, airlines? That's yet to be seen, and it's it's a massive capital investment. There's many other trends, such as, I would say, air shuttles and uh, Air taxis are being considered in different Asian cities. And what are the benefits to those? And does that lend itself to a better sustained mobility network? Or does this create more of an environment that is, I would say, geared towards specific economic sectors? Well, it's yet to be seen. I have my own opinions, but there's certain, uh, I would say, use cases and templates we can point to, which are simply private helicopter uh, charter companies operating in Sao Paulo, Brazil right now, which are uh, skyscraper hoppers for the rich and elite that move people around from one skyscraper to the next and avoid the massive traffic in Latin American cities such as Sao Paulo, Brazil. Is that what, uh, you know, uh, kind of autonomous or uh, air travel, air taxis uh, bode for our future? Not sure, but we, we have some use cases to point to. And then finally, just the discussion on autonomy itself. You know, personal autonomy vehicles has taken quite a bit of a, a black eye recently and a massive hit. Um, Uber has divested from autonomy. Lyft just divested from autonomy and sell, sold off its unit to Toyota, what, two days ago. Um, you know, many of the startups that were uh, that are US-based that produced a lot of the, uh, I would say, tier one suppliers for, I would say, uh, sensing as well as the other components for autonomy and testing. There's uh, interesting success stories, certainly with Waymo and, and Cruise and others that are, are uh, providing some uh, you know, interesting promise for the future. But I would say that appetite for investment in personal autonomy, certainly in Silicon Valley in North America, uh, has cooled off even since the last time we spoke. So that, that's a trend. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with more private sector commercial autonomy. And that leaves us with more public sector autonomy for uh, for transport. So that is where we uh, start thinking of autonomy as maybe another mode that could be complemented in this multimodal network, whether it's demand response transit, DRT, you know, on-demand buses. Do we have robo-shuttles that are uh, integrated into our public transport network that you can uh, hail on-demand in more of a coverage zone versus a fixed route. So it's not a fixed route bus or rail network, but it's an on-demand shuttle that is driverless. I don't know. I mean, that's something that's considering. I think it has some promise, but I think the geometries and the uh, ridership versus the coverage, because this is something that uh, many transit planners uh, think about in terms of how many riders can they, I would say, offer on a hourly basis has to be studied further. 
but that has some interesting thoughts to it. And then the other, I would say, massive shift that is under exploration, certainly using Southeast Asia as a test bed. So this would be like Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Seoul, South Korea are, for lack of a better word, robo-taxis. So robo-taxis are the big thing right now. So that leads to uh, Intel's investment in MoveIt and uh, utilizing the public transit uh, data repository for uh, assessing the viability of robo-taxis and using that as a basis for kind of multimodal journeys. So I remain on the fence. I'm not positive or negative. Uh, I'm negative on personal autonomy right now because I really don't see it having the use case or the business model at this point yet. We'll, we'll see where that goes. But commercial autonomy, uh, driverless platoon trucks are very interesting. I think that has uh, quite a bit of uh, research and development investment in Europe, in the Benelux region and in uh, Scandinavia. So we're seeing a lot of activity in Netherlands, as well as like in Sweden with a lot of the OEMs like Scania, Volvo trucks, et cetera. A lot of cool stuff happening there with the platoon trucks. Uh, and then again, back to um, autonomy for DRT, uh, some of the interesting stuff that VIA is doing, VIA On Demand and others. We'll see. Um, I think that's what the future holds, but that's on the techie side. This is on the smart city side. And I, I don't want to repeat that theme before getting past the hype because that was our title of our last podcast. I think these some these are some smart cities or urbanist interventions that are actually quite viable and feasible from a tech perspective. But more of the non-tech futurism perspective for mobility is simply more human-scaled, neighborhood-based active transportation, walking and cycling, and fitting those modes into our multimodal journeys. And basically, boosting public transport, not moving away from public transport. So let's stop talking about public transit is dead, or are we all going to move back to our cars and everything? That can't be the way it is. Public transport is not going anywhere. If anything, it needs to be thought of as one mode in a much more, I would say, multifaceted uh, network of opportunities for consumers. And thinking of this at a more human scale, at a more uh, neighborhood scale, makes it much more feasible to construct your journeys in a sustainable manner that will align with sustainability development goals, uh, whether you're here in Europe and you're developing SUMPs, as you're very well aware, Zoe, uh, at the European Commission level, sustainable urban mobility plans for each municipality or region in, here in, in mainland Europe. Or if you're in North America, developing in the United States, long-range uh, transportation plans as well. What are your goals and objectives and policies? And how are you going to align with those 20, 30, 40 years from now? Well, you're going to be thinking about these different interventions and measures at a more human scale that you can actually deliver uh, sustainable results versus taking uh, more of a tech-reliant, tech-driven approach that will fail to deliver results due to its over-reliance on research and development that is yet to be proven in a commercial manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot there as well. And I think, yeah, it is interesting to see and, and test and try these things and then see how they could be um, scalable, but then also thinking, well, we can actually influence the adoption of these things, particularly in Australia, we're doing some work at the moment on that program. And it's like, well, well, what do we want it to look like? Yeah. What are our desired outcomes? And then work back from them. Don't let tech drive things for tech's sake or this goes back to data standards, like data standards for micromobility. There tends to be a proclivity or a notion that if we just develop an all-in-one app or an all-in-one data standard, 
then uh, if you build it, they will come. And I think that is getting the argument all wrong. We need to think of identifying our problem sets and our desired outcomes, and the technology will flow from there. And I think that is where we have gotten smart cities, as well as micromobility, as well as even mobility as a service, all wrong the last five years. And we need to flip the script very quickly now in light of COVID. Well, Scott, it's been so great to chat with you. So last question, how can people connect with you? Sure. Uh, Twitter at Scott Cities First. So at sign S-C-O-T-T-C-I-T-I-E-S, number one S-T, Scott Cities First. Or you can find me at Scott Shepherd on uh, LinkedIn. We will put the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Uh, thank you again for joining me again on the podcast. It's been great. It feels like a very long time ago, but also not that long ago at the same time that we had a last conversation. We are in a different world now. I, it's amazing. But I'm very hopeful and positive for the future. I see a lot of interesting, exciting things happening in urbanism and mobility. So I think as we emerge past COVID, certainly in 2022, we have a lot to be hopeful for. Well, we'll end it there. Um, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. And yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Zoe. Say bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.